This episode of How the West Was Cast is brought to you in part by Fistful of Bourbon, the bourbon of choice for Western movie fans with good taste. From the 2018 Master Distillers of the Year comes a bold new American whiskey in Fistful of Bourbon. Their whiskeys have been award-winning for generations. Now they're going all in on bourbon, blending five straight whiskeys to create a big, balanced bourbon that stands apart from everything else. So grab yourself a fistful of bourbon, a blend of five bourbons created with over 100 years of whiskey blending experience. It ain't just a bourbon, it's a damn fistful. Please enjoy responsibly. Howdy, friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Clarky, two whiskeys. You see that sign? Around these parts, free grazers is a first. Now he asked you twice. Ain't gonna ask again. Hey, Bill. It's all right. These are the fellas that saved my dog. I couldn't serve them if they saved Jesus himself. Mr. Baxter'd have my job. Baxter the owner? That's right. Give me a bottle, I'll serve him myself. You know I can't do this. Now we'll have our drinks. That was Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall ordering a whiskey in open range. And on this special episode of How the West Was Cast, our topic is saloon scenes. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, before we continue, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us about your favorite saloon scene, or suggest another topic that you'd like us to cover on a future show. Also, we've got a little surprise in store for you at the very end of this episode, so don't turn off the podcast too quickly, or you just might miss it. Okay then, Andrew, why don't you set up the topic of today's show? Of all the institutions found in the typical Old West town, none is as fertile a ground for drama as the saloon. The saloon is often the first place the mysterious wandering hero visits when he arrives in town, thirsty from the trail and not looking for the trouble that will inevitably find him. It may also be the last place he patronizes before venturing out into the street for a climactic duel. The saloon is also the first port of call for gangs of rowdy cowboys looking to blow off a little steam after a long cattle drive, or at the end of a hard week's or month's work on a nearby ranch. It's in the saloon that we find some of the Western's most venerable characters in their natural habitat. Characters like the bartender, that philosopher and living encyclopedia of sporting knowledge, ready to lend a sympathetic ear, provided the customer can pay his bill at the end of the night always with a concealed shotgun in reach, and eternally weary of losing another mirror to an errant bullet or chair or body 
flying across the bar. There's also the saloon girl, she of shady past, dubious virtue, and, most of the time, golden heart, whose singing and dancing and films of the Western's classic period was a well-understood, production code-approved stand-in for other professional activities, and whose love for the hero may offer her an escape from her nocturnal existence, or may doom her to an even darker fate. The general store, the sheriff's office, the church, the schoolhouse, the livery, all have their place in the western town's social fabric, and in the story of many a western movie. But no other establishment catalyzes a western's action quite like the saloon. So for this episode, we're going to focus on three main elements related to Western saloons, namely our favorite saloon girls, our top bartenders, and the best bar fight scenes. So Andrew, who is your favorite saloon girl? My favorite saloon girl is Feathers from Rio Bravo, played marvelously by Angie Dickinson. Feathers arrives by stage in the Texas border town of Rio Bravo. She's trying to outrun her past, along with a wanted poster for her recently deceased gambler husband. She almost immediately finds herself mixed up with the town's lawman, John T. Chance, who already has enough on his hands. Chance, played by John Wayne, has arrested the no-good brother of a powerful local rancher, and his only allies in this fight number a drunk, an old coot, and my Uncle Ricky. Just kidding about that last part. <laughs> The last great film made by Howard Hawks, Rio Bravo exemplifies many of the director's signatures, like a focus on masculine camaraderie, a detached observational camera style, and the presence of the Hawksian woman, which Robin Wood, in his influential book on Hawks, describes as sturdy and independent, yet sensitive and vulnerable, the equal of any man, yet not in the least masculine. Dickinson's Stunning looks are matched by a truly beguiling performance. Witty and loquacious, Feathers simultaneously enchants and frustrates the taciturn chance. He just can't figure her out. She looks the part, but doesn't act it, defying both his and our expectations for the saloon girl. In romantic scenes, Wayne was never the suavest of performers, and Hawks exploits his awkwardness to full effect, letting Dickinson carry their scenes together. Feathers completely takes the lead in the relationship, in parallel to Chance's relationship with the alcoholic dude, played by Dean Martin. This makes Rio Bravo's final scene, where Feathers and Chance finally consummate the relationship, less a humorous postscript than the true climax of the movie. Wow, I have to say, she is the best. When we divvied these categories up, I figured you would pick her, so I just went ahead and picked somebody else. I knew you somebody had, was going to get her. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what red-blooded Western fan wouldn't pick her as the top saloon girl? One of the great pleasures of living in Los Angeles is being able to attend screenings where the cast and crew of films, classic movies show up for Q&As. And earlier this year, right before the current lockdown situation, 
I had the honor of seeing Angie Dickinson appear at the Lemley Royal Theatre in West L.A. to discuss Rio Bravo. I think it was maybe the second or third time she's participated in one of these about this film. It comes up every three or four years, and she's clearly a fan of this movie and of her experience working on it. So it was just fantastic to see her share memories of working with Wayne and how important this movie was to her life. She dearly loves it. She speaks really eloquently about it and self-deprecatingly about it. She gives the the reason why this film is so beloved. She passes off to everyone else in the cast and crew. She's she's a really remarkable person that way. And, uh, you know, what more can you say about her? She's She's just the best saloon girl. Yeah, I've seen a number of interviews with Dickinson over the years speaking about this film. And she is in person just as charming as she is on screen. And it it's always nice to see an actor who seems to, to really understand what it is about the role that audiences seem to relate to. And she's usually quite articulate about this and in, in recognizing that, you know, Feathers kind of has this really interesting place in this masculine world. And she talks about how that parallels the the world of of actual filmmaking where it was a, a largely a, a masculine world with the exception of the makeup artists and the costume people it's just a, an amazing performance from the the moment she appears and completely undermines chance's authority right to the very end of the movie it's really odd to see a woman in a western in a way grooming a man for a relationship kind of taking charge the way that she does and then voluntarily giving up her own agency, but in a way that uh, signifies they're entering a, a kind of a compact of equals, which which is really what Hawks was, was, was often about in his films, this idea of people forming these free associations with one another and, and maintaining a kind of independence and agency. It's, it's just really the, the epitome in a sense of, of the dance hall girl archetype, as well as that of the Hawksian woman synthesizing into something just remarkable and wonderful. Her comedy chops are put to such great use here. She's so funny. That courtship that she has with Wayne is really a battle of words, sly innuendo and cheeky little implications that she gently teases him about throughout the entire movie from the very first time she meets him. She's delicately tests the envelope of what she can get away with with him. It's it's such a, a charming relationship that develops there. I mean, I, I tend to think Wayne's relationship with women in his films, his relationship with them is always interesting, They're, and this one more so than almost any other. It's different than with uh, a Maureen O'Hara. Sure. That's for sure. And and that tends to be the, you know, the, the Wayne counterpart that most people think about because of their multiple screen pairings together. But there, there's something about this one where, you know, as I said, Hawks has the the authority in in some senses to to pick on Wayne to a certain degree and it it comes through in the scenes where reading at least reading accounts of the the making of this film you know Wayne was was actually quite uncomfortable or unsure about how to play some of their exchanges that he was uh, uncomfortable in the first place with their their age difference that she was i believe 26 when she made this film and he was you know well into his 50s and i think it continued on down from there so you, you have these you know, lengthy, almost monologues that she goes in where she's kind of introspective and she's verbalizing not only what she's saying, but also what she imagines him to be thinking and saying. And, and that to me is what distinguishes this on-screen pairing from a lot of Wayne's others. There, there isn't the same kind of moment where he takes charge in the relationship, even towards the end. It really is a, a great match. 
I, I love that moment when we find out and when he finds out too that she's been sitting outside his room all night guarding him some like a woman guarding John Wayne is pretty special and how concerned she is for both him and for everyone else in the town she's she really has this a uh, huge heart that we see uh, although i admit that i'm always disappointed a little bit at the very end when she tosses those stockings or when Wayne tosses her stockings out the window just like is it just the year that the film was made that he couldn't have pocketed them or kept them for later? <laughs> he, I mean, he throws them out the window and you realize, oh, it's vanilla John Wayne. And uh, luckily, Stumpy catches them or gets gets his hand on them. And I imagine that he's going to put them to good use somehow. I don't think <laughs> he's going to be throwing them in the trash. But what what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I think I'll ever make sheriff. Well, um, you know, as, as part of the promotion for this film, uh, Angie Dickinson's legs were, I believe, insured for however many millions of dollars by Lloyd's of London. So why cover up billion-dollar legs? Yes, there'll never be another like Rio Bravo with its thundering story of raw courage against overwhelming odds and its once-in-a-lifetime combination of today's hottest star names. You've seen nothing like them together, and here at Rio Bravo, nothing can tear them apart. Tired, aren't you, John T.? And fix you a nice hot bath. All I want is a drink. Then, uh, this is all I can do for you? This has been one of the few peaceful scenes from the picture Rio Bravo with John Wayne, Dean Martin, and Walter Brennan here. And a new girl, Angie Dickinson. Tell them about Ricky Nelson. Oh, yeah, that's me. Come and see us. Okay, Matt, that's my number one saloon girl. Who is your favorite saloon girl? My top saloon girl is Marilyn Monroe in River of No Return. Released in 1954, the film was directed by three-time Oscar nominee Otto Preminger, and it was written by British-born American screenwriter Frank Fenton. Although Preminger had no experience directing westerns and was primarily known for war films and crime movies, Fenton had written several westerns prior to this one. In River of No Return, Monroe plays Kay Weston, a tent city saloon singer on the northwestern frontier in 1875. When not performing breathy torch songs for grubby drunks, Kay's been keeping a watchful eye on 10-year-old Mark Calder, whose father, Matt Calder, has just been released from prison. The film opens with Matt arriving at the Boomtown campsite to reclaim his son and head out to a farm that he's recently purchased. But after Kay's crooked fiancé steals Matt's horse and rifle and leaves him for dead, she and the Calders wind up navigating a treacherous river on a wooden raft. Along the way, they battle hostile Indians, deadly mountain lions, and murderous prospectors, and, of course, they fall in love. Now, River of No Return is notable for two main reasons— First is the truly spectacular Canadian scenery, which is captured in glorious technicolor by Oscar-winning cinematographer Joseph Lachelle. And second, it's noted for the star power of Marilyn Monroe. The actress was at the height of her initial popularity when she made the film, 
In fact, shooting began just days after her handprints were immortalized in wet cement outside the Grauman's Chinese Theater, a ceremony reserved only for the biggest stars in Hollywood. Monroe was 27 years old at the time, and although she had no interest in westerns and didn't really like this script, the studio sold her on it by casting hunk-of-the-moment Robert Mitchum to play her laconic love interest. Together, Monroe and Mitchum generate a decent amount of sexual chemistry on screen, most notably in the scene where he rubs her bare legs and naked body to warm her up after she's been soaked with freezing cold water. Now, some of Monroe's biographers rank her performance here as one of her worst, but that's wildly overstated. While it doesn't measure up to her work in classics like The Misfits or Some Like It Hot, it's certainly more successful than some of her sloppy romantic comedies like Let's Make It Legal or There's No Business Like Show Business. What I love about Kay is how jaded she is. That's an essential trait when it comes to saloon girls, and Monroe captures it really nicely. Kay isn't delicate or timid in this film. She's a tough yet sad character who braves the elements while standing up against her macho male co-stars. There's almost a film noir aspect to her character, which helps add to the drama. In one of the more telling moments in the film, Matt discovers Kay gathering berries on the shore and snidely comments, I didn't think you were the type. To which she responds, even my type gets hungry. Later, when he asks her why she went to work as a saloon girl in the first place, she replies sadly, I had to live. At least I thought so. Moments like these directly address Kay's status as a fallen woman in Matt's eyes, which of course is ironic considering the crime that he went to prison for, namely shooting a man in the back. When you watch the film, pay close attention to the sound design. Sometimes while Kay is speaking, Preminger adds the ghostly sound of saloon music in the background, like an echo of a distant memory. It's almost like a scent she gives off, and it's hugely effective. Between these moments, not to mention her fantastic costumes and well-choreographed song and dance numbers, Monroe's portrayal of an independent woman in the Old West who does what she has to to survive makes her one of my favorite saloon girls. I have a real soft spot for River of No Return, partly because of, as you said, its spectacular cinemascope cinematography of the Rocky Mountains of Alberta, Canada, where I actually spent a lot of time in my youth. Wow. Uh, this movie looks like it felt to be in some of those amazing places. So corny, corny, but true. Um, also, the ever, films. Did you ever go through and like find any of those locations? You know, I've, I've actually been to a f I've been to a few places. I've been to the hotel where they stayed. Uh, they stayed at the Bamp Springs Hotel as a kind of base. I've also been to a few ranches uh, that they used in some of the filming. And this would have been back in. You know, like the late 80s and early 90s where people were still working at those places who had vague stories of Marilyn Monroe, um, kind of assuming that that would be meaningless to me. But even as a youth, that was meaningful to me. So uh, so it's, it's just amazing to see a, a place that you're familiar with get represented so gloriously on screen. I should also say that the film scholar in me cannot help but admire a Western retelling of the Italian neorealist masterpiece, Bicycle Thieves. Um, this is, wait, is that what this is? Oh yeah. Um, wow. I, I, I have no clue about that. Oh I, yeah. So, so, in, well, so instead of the man's, uh, bicycle being stolen and he and his son spending the, the day searching for it, a man's horse is stolen. And so he sets out with his son to retrieve it. Wow. You're right. So there we go. So long before, 
Um, you know, we, we had the, the back and forth of uh, the Magnificent Seven and the Seven Samurai and so on. We had this, the Bicycle Thieves and River of No Return. It's a little loose in its adaptation, let's say. But my understanding is that's, that's the genesis of the, of the story. Uh, this is one of my favorites of Monroe's performances. Um, I've, uh, I've also read that uh, she has said or said at various points that this was her worst film. I guess she hadn't watched Bus Stop recently, uh, <laughs> although her character uh, doesn't have the same kind of you know, developed tragic backstory that we sometimes get. And, and thus, she has less of the baggage of many saloon girls. Uh, figuratively as as well as literally, it turns out. I find that she brings a certain dignity to the part, uh, maybe because of the formal diction that she uses, which apparently drove Otto Preminger crazy. Uh, also, her rapport with the young Rory Calhoun is often quite charming, I find. Yeah, she, she has a real connection with him. The, the two of them develop this nice little side relationship. She almost has more chemistry with him than with Mitchum, except for a few key scenes, which are pretty hot. It was sad to hear that her diction coach was on set all the time and drove Preminger crazy, like you're saying. And apparently she was a pill to work with and somehow insulted the little boy and about his acting talent, which sent him crying away and we wouldn't come back. So Preminger kicked her off the set and Monroe had to you know, beg the studio head to let her back on. It, it was a difficult movie. She injured herself while making it and spent most of the time on crutches. I don't think it was a joyful experience for people, but it doesn't come through necessarily on screen. It just looks like, you know, quite a, a colorful adventure. Well, there, yeah, there are a couple of scenes that to me stand out for both good and bad reasons. So my understanding is that uh, Daryl Zanuck, after Preminger had you know, delivered the picture and gone off to Europe, watched the film and decided it needed a, a few extra things. So those key additions were uh, the scene in the cave with the aforementioned rub down that mm, you mentioned. Good choice. And, and then also uh, a scene where Mitchum basically forces himself uh, upon Monroe's character. And b both of those scenes stand out for good and bad reasons. One, because they're much more explicit than anything else in the movie, but they also stand out as being clearly shot in the studio as opposed to the location shooting. There, I mean, there are some really awkward moments in the film where we cut to what are obviously studio scenes and the contrast could not be starker with the location cinematography. So there are a number of scenes that feel out of place, kind of visually and tonally. But but those additions are, are certainly the steamiest moments in the movie. Yeah, that moment you, know, you mentioned when he forces himself on her and grabs her, it really is staged and shot and edited like an attack scene. There's no other way to read it. She doesn't – it's not like he's figured out that this is what she's always wanted – it's really, it's not that moment. And it, then it just never gets referenced again. It's one of those weird moments like we talked about in um, The Way West, where Douglas has his slave whip him, where you just wonder, what was the thought behind this? I get that they were trying to build up some kind of sexuality between the two, but really the rubdown scene is the way to go compared to this <laughs> weird attack scene. Yeah. This performance is also notable because it gives Monroe multiple opportunities to to perform, which is something we don't always see the, the dance hall girl do, which gives a, a kind of integrity to a performance. Uh, what do you what do you make of her as a, a songstress in the film's attempts to find moments for her to sing? 
I really enjoy them. I, I love the the variety we get. We get her in the tent saloon at the beginning, which is really a cool set. It, it looks great. There's all these hand printed signs around there, like whiskey, twenty five cents a swallow, and and she comes out in this gorgeous outfit and she uses the costume really well during her performance i think she picks it up with her hands and she moves the skirt she plays with it she does her own singing i mean it's i think it's dubbed in but they didn't hire somebody else so i always admire that when the performer actually does their own singing uh, well, i mean watching her in that tent i can see why all those guys are staring at her then midway through the film, we get a number of little lullabies that she sings here and there and um, to, to the little boy and or sings to herself. And then it all builds up to her singing River of No Return at the very end in that that final saloon. I love those sequences. I feel like she gets extra points as a saloon girl for actually performing. So that's what, one of the main reasons why I picked her. There is a river called the River. Who is your choice for top bartender? This was a difficult decision, but I decided to go with Stella from 1985's Silverado, played by Linda Hunt, who is today, I suppose, best known for her roles in television series The Practice and NCIS Los Angeles. Stella runs the Midnight Star Saloon. Are you the Midnight Star herself? asks gunslinger Payton, played by Kevin Klein, after meeting her. I am, she responds. I'm always there, but I only shine at night. Silverado is sort of like the Star Wars of westerns, in the way it nostalgically invokes earlier movies. But rather than combine elements from different genres and forms, like Star Wars does, Silverado weaves together nearly every conventional western movie plot and populates it with every stock Western character. Saying that Silverado is heavy on tradition and light on innovation would be an understatement. But it's here that Stella stands out. The diminutive bartender emerges as the clear-eyed and wry-humored conscience of the movie, particularly through her touching platonic friendship with Peyton. When he first notices the bench she stands on behind the bar to keep her at eye level with patrons, she remarks, the world is what you make of it, friend. If it doesn't fit, you make alterations. The bartender as philosopher may be a well-established trope of the genre, but few Western saloon keepers manage to offer anything approaching actual wisdom. Not Stella. She offers the hero not liquid courage, but 
spiritual sustenance. Towards the end of the film, the villainous Cobb has cowed Payton into an action by threatening Stella. When Payton reveals this to her, she takes it in stoically and responds, So good people are being hurt because of me. That makes me mad. Some people think because they're stronger or meaner that they can push you around. I've seen a lot of that. But it's only true if you let it be. The world is what you make of it. Fine words from a fine bartender. Great choice. Great choice. Linda Hunt really is one of the most underrated elements of this film, I think. I mean, it's hard to really rise up in this movie because the cast is so huge. Everybody's colorful. Everybody's great. But she really is a treasure in this movie, I think. And and such an interesting casting choice. Normally, I would imagine Peyton's and Stella's relationship would develop into a romantic one. But instead, we get, like you said, this platonic friendship relationship where they instinctively understand each other from the very first moment, perhaps because they both seem most at home in a saloon. Kevin Klein frequently says in the film, it's the only place he feels happy is a smelly saloon. There's that great moment after he says that line about smelly saloons where he actually walks into one a few scenes later and pauses and inhales. It's it's such a great moment. I mean, the, the relationship is a is a fascinating one in some ways, and I, I I just like the fact that her role is actually consequential in the film, not only in terms of serving as a kind of inspiration for the characters, but she's actually integral to the plot, which often doesn't happen with bartender characters who tend to be uh, ultimately superfluous or, or serve a different role, kind of giving information to the the protagonist tends to be the main one. So I love that, um, and I I agree with you about. You know, Kevin Klein's character in bars. It's kind of interesting how he goes through this sort of process of elimination where the film first suggests that he and Rosanna Arquette's character are, are maybe going to be the couple, but you know, it, it's him who very clearly realizes that no, that, that isn't for him. He really just wants to be in, in the saloon. Saloons play a, a really interesting role in this film throughout the entire thing. We get that great moment in one of the saloons where Danny Glover's character has this very consequential shot of whiskey that he wants and that he's willing to you know, risk his life to drink between that and, you know, the Peyton scenes that we talked about. It, it almost has to be called out too. what a great looking saloon the Midnight Star is. Uh, it's one of the prettiest saloons I think we're going to talk about on the show. We see it both in the daytime and at nighttime, and both periods have a very different vibe to them. It's been art directed to a T. It just looks great, and Stella looks awesome behind the bar. The world is what you make of it, friend. If it doesn't fit, you make alterations. I'll drink to that. Can you join me, Miss... Stella. Hey. Stella. Are you the midnight star herself? I am. I'm always there, but I only shine at night. Compliments to you, Miss Stella. This is what I call a saloon. Thanks. That's what I call it, too. And I know what I'm talking about. You like a good saloon? It's the only place I'm happy. Me, too. What's wrong with us? Okay, Matt, so we've got a beautiful bartender in a beautiful bar. Who's your pick for top bartender? 
Oh, we're going to go 180 <laughs> degrees different here. Um, my choice for bartender is Cheech Marin in Desperado. Now, before you complain that Desperado isn't technically a Western, let me assure you, it's close enough. Falling somewhere between a remake and a sequel to his surprise 1992 hit El Mariachi, director Robert Rodriguez crafted Desperado as a modern tribute to the spaghetti westerns that he grew up watching in Texas. The film's bloody revenge plot is a composite of at least a half-dozen Euro westerns, and everything from the sets to the costumes to the score by Los Lobos drips with a thick western atmosphere. Desperado opens with an extended pre-title sequence that finds Cheech Marin serving drinks at the Tarasco Bar, a sleazy Mexican dive owned by El Bucho, a local crime boss and the target of the nameless mariachi played by Antonio Banderas. Into this den of vipers walks Steve Buscemi, playing a character named Buscemi. After ordering a vile-tasting chongo beer, Buscemi tells a wild story about a heavily armed mariachi slaughtering a group of El Bucho's minions at a different Mexican bar. It's an audacious opening scene in the style of the early Tarantino films, which often began with dialogue rather than action. As for Cheech Marin, well, he practically steals the entire first act. Much of the humor that he brings to the film comes from his silent reactions to the people around him. Just look at the way that he uses a toothpick in his mouth to speak volumes without saying a word. Whether he's raising a quizzical eyebrow or snickering at a customer or pausing in shock when Buscemi dares to utter the name El Bucho, all of Marin's facial expressions here are priceless. His character doesn't actually have a name in the film, He's referred to in the credits simply as short bartender, but he more than makes up for that in terms of the energy that he brings to the movie. His role here is structured as a series of comical face-offs, first with Buscemi, later with a trio of snotty American tourists, then with Quentin Tarantino in a weird little cameo, and finally with Banderas himself. Although he's wonderfully funny in the film, there's also a touch of menace to his character as well. We see him plot to murder a business partner, and later on he shoots someone in the face point-blank. In some ways, his entire role boils down to a single joke about the tradition in Westerns that the bartender never gets killed. It's a concept that this movie gorily disputes. Finally, I think it's worth mentioning that the Tarasco Bar is an actual working bar in Acuna, Mexico. In real life, it's called the Corona Club, and apparently the walls are adorned with photos of the cast and crew, so if you're a Desperado fan like me, well, why not pay them a visit when it's safe to travel again? Just be sure to leave a generous tip for your short bartender. <laughs> the bartender never gets killed. That's one of my favorite lines. And it points to one of the things that this film does very well. So you have characters who almost believe a kind of mythology that's been built up around the situations that they find themselves in. And uh, this is something that R Rodriguez is actually very good at playing with, especially in his early films, the the, the El Mariachi trilogy in, in particular. Uh, I love how you pointed out that the, the real hook of this performance isn't so much the dialogue, although he has some very funny lines. Um, you never look at a warm beer in the same way again after seeing this movie, <laughs> I suppose. Um, so in spite of those funny lines, it, it's really uh, Marin's reactions that not only 
are key to his performance, but also kind of tell the story. And in particular, the way he reacts to the, the two long stories that get told. Steve Buscemi's at, at the start of the film. And then uh, Quentin Tarantino's lengthy joke about a guy walking into a bar that comes about halfway through the movie, which is which is probably, for better or worse, the most famous thing about this movie, um, you know, 25 years uh, after its release. This was actually the first of eight times that Marin has acted in a Rodriguez film. They also collaborated, of course, in a similar weird bar in From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, they were also teamed up again for Machete and Planet Terror, all three Spy Kids movies, and most notably Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which was the third film in this mariachi trilogy. In that film, Marin also plays a bartender, but not the same bartender. Although when Rodriguez wrote the film, he wrote him back into the film as the same bartender, and people had to remind him, no, he died in that other movie. So much time had gone by, he totally forgot. There's a reason why Marin vanishes for a long portion of the bar fight where the mariachi shoots up the churrasco. It's because they could only afford him for six days of shooting, and they ran out of time. So in the movie, you'll see he dives behind the bar to get away from the gunfire, and that's just because he... He wasn't there anymore. Oh. So they shot around him. So, so this would have been around the period when he was making that uh, Nash Bridges money, I suppose, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is a uh, was a fairly easy choice for me. I don't know. Or do you love Cheech and Chong? Are you a Cheech and Chong fan? I am a huge Cheech and Chong fan. You know, uh, to Tommy Chong, of course, is, is also Canadian, but I do not feel the same uh, affinity for him as, as I do for the Rocky Mountains, let's say. <laughs> I grew up watching their movies. I saw them at the drive-in. And then um, I think it was about like seven years ago or something in LA, they had a 35th anniversary screening of Up in Smoke at the Los Angeles <laughs> County Museum of Art. And I'm sure that was a, a fragrant event. It was awesome because Cheech and Chong showed up to do the Q&A. And oh my goodness. they sat there for an hour just riffing, doing comedy routines. It was such a magic moment. Yeah, it, it, this was a no-brainer. Well, I think one thing that uh, Rodriguez has n noticed about Marin, maybe noticed before anyone else did, was just his range as a performer. Uh, so From Dusk Till Dawn is probably the, the epitome of that where he plays, I think, four different roles right. over the course of the movie, maybe three or four different roles. But I think you're right to point to the, the menace in his performance that he actually can be a, a kind of intimidating presence on screen and he gets to do this here, even though he's ultimately comedic. But that's what makes the character much more interesting than just a, a kind of idiot bartender. Can I get a cleaner mug? This one's dirty. Fuck you, man. It's the cleanest one I got. So anyway, without warning, without any hint or preview, a stranger whips around and he sees me. And he didn't do anything to you? Not really, because he turned his attention back to the guy on the floor. The stranger shot him, walked over to the bartender, paid, and left. So the bartender lived. <laughs> the bartender never gets killed. <laughs> but as the stranger neared the door, no man, the bartender got it worse than anybody. Mm -hmm. 
And that brings us to bar fights. My favorite Western bar fight is from The Spoilers, released in 1942 and directed by Ray Enright. Now, at outset, I think it's important to make a distinction between bar fights and barroom brawls. So that is between a fight between two combatants and a melee that engulfs an entire saloon and everyone in it. We're interested in the former, and my pick pits heroic prospector Roy Glenister, played by John Wayne, against the nefarious mining official McNamara, played by Randolph Scott. Rex Beach's 1906 novel, the spoilers, about the Alaskan gold rush, has been adapted to film five times. This rivals the Virginian for a major Western novel with the most average movie adaptations. Each film version of the spoilers ends in hand-to-hand combat. And I do have a soft spot for the 1914 version, which ends with Glenister, played by William Farnham, applying a vicious hammerlock to McNamara and victorious exclaiming, I broke him with my hands. (laughs) But the fistfight at the conclusion of the 1942 version tops all previous entries and in its stark black and white ferocity bests the 1955 color version. Glenister and McNamara first come to blows in the upstairs room of saloon proprietor Cherry Malott, played by Marlena Dietrich. I haven't got a gun on me, Glenister, says McNamara. No, replies Glenister, then we'll do it the hard way. After destroying Cherry's room, they spill out into an upstairs hallway and eventually crash down the stairs to the barroom floor below, exchanging punch after devastating punch. Just when it seems McNamara is licked, He lunges at Glenister, and the two men crash through the saloon's front window and continue to brawl in the street until Glenister finally emerges victorious. No matter how many times I see this fight, I'm always struck by its brutality. Halfway through, both men are bloodied and clearly exhausted, but the fight goes on for another three minutes, and on and on and on. It's almost enough to make you wish more Western heroes would have thrown away their guns and settled things with the villain mano a mano. Almost. This fight scene is incredible for all the reasons you just mentioned, both the ferocity, the stunt work is amazing. It's like this Rube Goldberg style fight that continues on and on and on. It it was so good that it's actually referenced in the film's trailer. At one point, they show a scene from the fight and those blazing words come up on screen and it says the screen's most smashing, clashing, brawling fist fight. So they knew that they had gold here. I think it, it's, it's so elaborate that it reminds me of the climactic fight in the quiet man, which is another major narrative fight that the entire film is sort of building up to the physical confrontation between these two characters. And Wayne just looks at his absolute physical peak here. I think he was 35 years old, which I place as the best age for action heroes. That's where Connery was 35 in Thunderball, where Hmm. he just looked amazing. So seeing Wayne at 35 crashing through walls and windows and that great move at the beginning, like you said, where Scott says that he doesn't have a gun, so Wayne twirls his and throws it out the window and launches like a panther at him. It's such a great opening to this fight. It's also brilliant when it gets so crazy that – 
the saloon itself starts falling apart around them. Pipes are falling from the ceiling. Like it's as though the world has come unglued because these two titans are crashing into each other. It's just wonderful. Yeah. And well, there's also the, the other people in the bar who, who, with one exception, stay out of the fight, but they form this kind of, you know, mass of humanity that creates this kind of bubble around them as they move about the different areas of the bar and then out into the street. It kind of has this really primal feel to it. And I agree with you about Wayne. It's actually interesting to watch some of Wayne's performances uh, before Red River. Red River was really the film that established the persona that Wayne rode through to the, the end of his career, that, you know, the, the tired weary authority figure, the man weighted down with responsibility. So here he hasn't quite figured out that persona yet. And it's it's interesting to see him display something more like a, a greater range of in his performance than you get a little bit later on. Um, but certainly this this fight is one of the highlights of his career. And, and, and that's saying something because he is in a lot of fights. The fight in The Quiet Man is, is often considered to be maybe the greatest fight of all time. You know, famously, John Carpenter, when when asked to explain what was up with that lengthy alley fist fight in They Live, said that he was trying to top the quiet man. But, but Wayne has lots of great fights. There's a really great uh, fist fight between him and Forrest Tucker and Chisholm. So Wayne is no stranger to fisticuffs. So saying that this is maybe his best fight is really saying something. Now, you, you mentioned the stunt work in this. And to be fair, I should I should point out that at various points in this five-minute punch-up, it's obvious that we're alternately not seeing Wayne or Scott, but their stunt doubles. And I I always find it striking how obvious it is that it is their stunt doubles. Um, it, it isn't concealed in the way that it might have been in uh, other films. And I, that's the product of of the, the fight employing a lot of wider shots where you actually see them exchange multiple blows and spill across the, the barroom floor, you know, knocking over the stove or something like that. So to me, it actually doesn't really matter that much because I find myself so wrapped up in the fight. Uh, do you notice that when watching the film? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, definitely. But like you said, it, my mind at that point is on other things. So I sort of acknowledge it like, oh, yeah, that's not really him. But then I just move off on to how incredible the editing is or the the camera work is speaking of the editing it really is fantastic those this it's real musicality to it in those awesome moments where wayne pulls back and punches the camera directly into the camera and then yes. scott reacts and then he punches so it involves you it's got this like first person camera moves uh, that puts you right in the middle of the action there's also this cool little I mean, I think it's cool. I think some people find it a problem. There's a, a moment in there where the, the action gets sped up. They kind of undercrank the camera so that yeah. it looks like the guys are moving in fast motion. I know that throws some modern audiences off where they think it's this archaic effect. I always just think visually it's an interesting looking effect. So mm -hmm. I kind of go with it. Um, you know, pitting Scott against Wayne here, I think is a really cool idea because Scott's a big man at 6'2". He can sort of hold his own against six four John Wayne. So it was a great, great pairing there. The Yukon, hot spot of the frozen north, wide open and wild, ruled by searing lead and silken legs. Against this lusty, brawling background, Rex Beach's memorable story produced by Frank Lloyd comes to vivid, exciting life with this outstanding cast. Marlena Dietrich, Randolph Scott. 
John Wayne, with Margaret Lindsay, Harry Carey, Richard Barthelmus, in a drama bold as the screen can give. From now on, things are going to be run my way, and you can start adjusting yourself to that idea. My selection for a favorite bar fight is the knife fight in The Long Riders. Released in 1980, The Long Riders is director Walter Hill's heartfelt ode to brotherhood and crime in the Old West. It tells the familiar story of the James Younger gang, which was made up of four families of brothers who robbed banks and trains in post-Civil War Missouri. This was the first of three theatrical westerns that Hill directed, or four if you count 1987's Extreme Prejudice and it's notable for its adherence to authenticity, except in the case of the film's show-stopping knife fight. Now, Hill is without a doubt one of cinema's all-time best action directors. No other filmmaker I know stages a gunfight or a beatdown with as much pulverizing intensity as Walter Hill, and his specialty is man-to-man combat between two opponents. For instance, there's the hilariously raunchy slugfest between Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours or the bizarre sledgehammer duel between Michael Pere and Willem Dafoe in Streets of Fire, or the half-a-dozen bare-knuckle boxing matches that Bronson endures in hard times. Simply put, when it comes to pitting two actors against each other in a bloody skirmish, it's hard to beat the man who wrote and directed The Warriors. The knife fight in The Long Riders takes place about midway through the film in a Texas saloon where Cole Younger, played by David Carradine, arrives looking for his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Belle Starr, the infamous prostitute and bordello madam who became a legendary outlaw herself. There, Cole draws the ire of Belle's new husband, Sam Starr, a notorious Cherokee Indian whose criminal past was extensive, to say the least. Wounded by a cruel remark from Cole, Belle challenges her ex-boyfriend and her new husband to fight each other in hand-to-hand combat. Pamela Reed gives a lusty, full-body performance as Belle Starr, a real-life figure who's been played by actresses ranging from Jane Russell to Florence Henderson. Actor James Remar, who was so unforgettable as the trash-talking Ajax in The Warriors, portrays Sam Starr as a hair-trigger psycho with a jealous streak a mile wide. The knife fight between Cole and Sam is a variation on the so-called Helena Duel, in which two opponents, both armed with short-blade knives, have their left wrists tethered together with buckskin, and then proceed to slash at each other until one of them either gives up or bleeds to death. But here, rather than simply using their wrists, Cole and Sam use a scarf clenched between their teeth as a tether. Although the scene doesn't really fit the rest of the film's style at all, and almost stops the movie in its tracks for eight crazy minutes, It's so wonderfully over-the-top and so inventively absurd, I just love it. So yes, fastening yourself orally to an enemy who wants to kill you is indeed a ludicrous way to fight someone. But man, oh man, is it cool to watch. (laughs) I am so pleased that you picked this uh, very unusual bar fight uh, that fits perfectly uh, within this episode of the podcast. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of the long riders. It's one of my favorite Westerns. It's, it's the Western that 
points to a, a kind of a forgotten future of, of amazing Westerns that might have happened in the 1980s had uh, The Empire Strikes Back been released the week after The Long Riders. Uh, the film has a an episodic or almost anecdotal quality to it as we kind of drift forward in time in a greatest hit style fashion through the lives of the, the Youngers and the Jameses. And I think this fight fits into that pretty well. It's, it's as if you're telling the story of that time Cole Younger fought Sam Starr in a bar, which probably didn't happen, but that doesn't mean it isn't an awesome scene. Uh, this is, to my mind, probably the closest a Western movie has ever got to staging a pro wrestling match. Right, right. I can't help but think of matches where, you know, wrestlers themselves are tethered together or, or also have a strap in their free hand that they can use to whip someone. So, you know, a leather strap or a chain or, or, or something along those lines. You're right that it, it, in a movie that is otherwise quite committed to authenticity, this really stands out right down to some of the dialogue that they exchanged before, which is very unlike the rest of the film. I, I think my, my favorite line is when uh, Cole Younger asks the, the very cynical Bell star played amazingly by Pamela Reed, what he's going to get, you know, what the winner of the fight gets. And she responds, nothing both of you haven't had before. That's such a Something great to that effect. She's got so many good yeah. lines when she hands them the scarf and says, have a chew. It's so <laughs> great. Like she's, she says it like, She's obviously done this before somehow. You get the feeling this was not just something she made up on the spur of the moment. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been racking my brain and I can't think of any uh, scene like this in any subsequent Westerns, which actually kind of surprises me that, that this wouldn't be one of those things that people might assume was, was actually historical as opposed to the, the invention of the filmmaker and then might begin to employ repeatedly in uh, in subsequent Western films. I'm actually kind of disappointed we haven't had more silk scarf in the mouth knife fights in subsequent Westerns. Yeah, we don't get the mouth thing. That's pure Walter Hill. But yeah. the, that concept of the Helen Adul uh, tying people together does pop up here and there. There's a pretty good Western from 2016 called The Duel starring Woody Harrelson and Liam Hemsworth that contains two Helena Duel scenes. Both of them are sort of nightmarish. It's one of those things that I just wonder, like, is this ur pure urban legend or is it, mm. did it happen a couple of times and just became kind of famous? But it's really a freaky way to fight somebody. Well, I, I have to say when it comes to Helena Duels, the, the thing that pops into my mind immediately is, um, is it bad? The Michael Jackson music video. Oh, right, right. Or Beat It. One of the two. One of those two. You're right. It's the dance-off <laughs> where they're tethered together. Yes. Yeah. I like, as, I like it. As, as often happens on the streets. On a purely technical level, I think this fight scene is pretty cool, too. You've Walter is, Hill is such a master at capturing those tiny little moments that lead up to a fight. Like, you've got this great sound effect where Sam Starr slaps the flat of his blade against his palm to sort of psych up his opponent. And then later on, you get that moment where Carradine pulls this crocodile Dundee style giant knife from behind his back. And you realize he's just carrying this around with him at all times. There's this great sound effects as the two knives clash together as they're fighting this comic book moment where Carradine pushes Sam Starr against a group of people and 12 of them fall down. It's, it's, yeah. it doesn't make much sense with the rest of the movie, which is sort of thoughtful and poetic. Here it's just like, here's a super cool fight that I always wanted to stage, but, but it really does pay off. 
I mean, it is staged similarly to the fight in the spoilers in some ways in terms of this great alternation between these wider shots that tend to play out in longer takes where you, you get a sense of continuity and it kind of heightens the the realism and the, the danger of the moment with these close-ups of expressions or you know, particular bits of business, knives clashing and so on. It, it is a really involving scene where, where we do, as in the spoilers, feel like we're a part of the action. You cold younger? I was asking. Sam Starr. I'm married to that lady. Pleased to meet you. Boys, there is no need to fight over little old me. But if you've got to, you make it man to man. Hand to hand. Why not? Well, I'm glad I caught you in a good mood. Here you go, both of you. Have a chew. What does the winner get? Nothing you both ain't already had. Don't make much sense, does it? Oh. You're both crazy, but you keep me occupied. I am having a real good time. Well, that about wraps things up for our tribute to Western Saloons. But be sure to stick around for a surprise treat after the show. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. So right now, we've got a little surprise in store for everyone. Since this is our saloon episode, and since whiskey and bourbon are such an important part of that, we've invited a genuine whiskey expert onto the show. His name is Anthony Bollinger, and he began his career bartending in New Jersey more than a decade ago. Since then, he's opened over 30 restaurants and bars, won a prestigious James Beard Award for Outstanding Bar Program, and currently serves as the brand ambassador for Fistful of Bourbon, a terrific new whiskey brand that we're partnering with for this episode. And with that said, it is my pleasure to welcome Anthony onto the show. Hello, Anthony. How are we doing, sir? Thank you for having me. Just so I get your name right, I know you sometimes go by Terry. Is that how we should refer to you here or what? I mean, yeah, I guess you can call the stage name uh, Terry or Fistful of Terry. Uh, most people, I guess, in the industry call me Terry, so we can go with that. You got it. Let's do it. Terry it is. So before we get started, I've just got a couple of very simple Western movie questions for you since we're a Western Oof. movie podcast. Don't worry. Nothing too hard, I promise. Yeah. Just a couple of either ors so we can get to know you a little bit. So um, the first question, if you're about to sit down and watch a Western at night, do you reach for a John Wayne movie or a Clint Eastwood film? I would go Clint Eastwood. Yeah, what is it about Clint that, that does it for you? Um, I'm 39 years old, so I guess it's closer to my age uh, uh, bracket uh, rather than John Wayne. Plus those those spaghetti westerns that he, are, he was in are, are just 
you know, hard to pass up those. I, John Wayne is a, maybe for a more committed Western audience. For the, the average movie fan, I guess Clint would be pretty good. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm a little, listen, I'm, 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 I know my spirits. I know my bar um, genre. But as far as spaghetti Westerns and Western genre, I'm a little more acclimated toward uh, Clint Eastwood's work. Well, then second question I'm assuming might be a little bit more up your alley. If you've got Clint Eastwood on your DVD player or Blu-ray player, what if I add Kevin Costner in there? Would you go for a Costner Western like Dances with Wolves or Open Range or are you stick, sticking with Clint? I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of Costner, um, more of a Tin Cup Costner fan. Great but, choice. Um, Good for choice. Western, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. I'm going to stick with Clint. Nice, nice. And my last little either or, you decide you're not going to do Clint. You're going to go with a Kurt Russell Western instead. Are oh, you going with Tombstone or The Hateful Eight? Ooh, I mean, I, I'm a huge Tarantino fan. Um, I just, for, for cinematography reasons, I'm going to go Hateful Eight. I think it's just an amazingly produced um, and, and visual amazing, visually amazing movie. Uh, I'm I'm totally down with you. That that would be my choice as well. Good, solid choice. Uh, right. So turning our attention now to whiskey, tell me a little bit about Fistful of Bourbon. How would you describe this particular brand to someone who hasn't tried it yet? So if you're in the whiskey genre, you're looking for a nice, approachable um, American whiskey, primarily a bourbon, this is for everybody. And the idea behind this product, which we just launched September 14th, was we're trying to make a whiskey for the masses. So nothing too high in alcohol content, nothing too expensive. It hits all the approachable notes and kind of standard flavor profiles for just a really nice drinkable whiskey. Now it's a blended whiskey. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, 100%. So to get behind the blend, the product's made by um, our family, William Grant and Sons. So we have been making whiskey, primarily scotch, for over a century, over 131 years. We're an American whiskey that's made by scotch whiskey makers. So they decided to go for a blend because when you make scotch, it's generally all about the blends. So you think about layering a cake and layering flavor profiles. That's what they did with Fistful of Bourbon. You know, they took a barrel of straight bourbon whiskey, could have been high corn, right? A, a nice, um, a nice approachable, you know, corn based uh, bourbon. And then they started adding different barrels to it to kind of add depth and dimension and um, extreme, just a big nuance of character. So that's how they kind of built it to create this really approachable flavor profile. Wow, yeah, it is great stuff. Um, I've got a bottle of it right here with me, and I'm pouring a shot as we speak. And Love I it. thought we could do a little live taste. I'll give you my impression. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have Sounds to say, good. this is a very smooth bourbon. It doesn't have that kind of like bite to it. Yeah, it's not like you, and, and some, um, you know, and some. There's amazing whiskeys out there, and that's the beauty of American whiskey, primarily bourbon. I mean, there, there's a lot very drinkable, and there's so many different aspects to it. You know, there's you know rye-based, wheat-based bourbons that are a little sweeter, high-proof, bonded, all different styles. And the beauty of ours is, you know, the blend of five straight bourbon whiskeys, ninety-proof. It's extremely drinkable and approachable. Um, you're going to get all your classic. If you if you take a general sip of a fistful of bourbon, keep it in your mouth a little bit. You do something called the Kentucky Chew where you kind of just wash it through your mouth a little bit, take a little chew of it. And then you release and exhale all those notes. That's when you get all those primarily oak characteristics um, of flavor profile coming out of your, of your mouth, of your senses, your cinnamon, your vanilla, a little molasses, 
Um, it's a really easy drinking bourbon. Yeah, I'm glad you said cinnamon because that was came to mind right away. Cinnamon and some vanilla in there maybe or yeah. nut, nutmeg. It's got that kind of like warmth, that winter warmth vibe to it. Even though it's a blend, it sort of melts together into this one cohesive whole, which I wasn't really expecting. Yeah, and, and we've been tasting this throughout, you know, amazing whiskey uh, drinkers throughout the country for the last year. And, you know, the beauty of blending five different barrels is every time you revisit that glass when you're tasting it, it's going to kind of change flavor profile. You might get a, a different um, finish, you know, might make a little bit of vanilla, cinnamon on the back end. And then you revisit it again. Sometimes you might get a little like um, anise, almost licorice on the back end. It's the, the whiskey keeps changing and growing and blossoming in the glass. And I really think that's a distinctive characteristic of you know, the blending process from our, our team out there. As a kid, I really loved the taste of cream soda. That was one of my fla oh, yeah. go-to flavors along with root beer. But cream soda was my preference. And this bourbon almost reminds me of that in a way. I'm not sure if that's crazy or what, but it has that mm -hmm. little vibe to it. There is nothing crazy about, you know, when you're tasting wine, uh, whiskey, anything, everyone's got a different you know, kind of nostalgic flavor that they go back to. And, and that's the most beautiful thing, I think. You're tasting food. You're tasting spirits. If you can relate to something, it brings you back to something from your childhood or your young adult life. Um, that's a, it's a win in our fact. Obviously, one of the things that attracted my attention to the brand originally was its apparent fondness for Westerns. Clearly, that's an important part of its brand identity. You've got the name of the bottle itself, Fistful of Bourbon, which sort of recalls Fistful of Dollars and Fistful mm -hmm. of Dynamite, two classics. Then you've got the design of the bottle, which has this Western theme to it a little bit. They've got these great commercials online, these hilarious Western-themed commercials. And they even sponsored this great Spaghetti Western marathon last month on the Night Flight streaming channel, which I loved. Which leads me to believe that this is a brand that kind of appreciates Westerns, which is unusual. Is that correct? Yeah, 100%. So we have an amazing marketing agency out of Philadelphia called uh, uh, Quaker City Mercantile. And they're the people behind the brand lens between like um, Hendrix gin, you know, a really unusual cucumber and rose based um, uh, Scottish made gin. And they're really good at kind of branding. And the idea behind this whiskey is, you know, we didn't want to make some fake backstory of, you know, we found these barrels in an old Rick house in Kentucky. It's, you know, we wanted to make an affordable, approachable whiskey. We have the accolades by, you know, making whiskey award-winning whiskey through the last hundred years 130 years um you know we we knew our spirit was premium you know we got double gold in the international spirits competition all that stuff but we wanted we didn't want to be so serious about our, our brand lives you know we wanted to have you know take our spirit seriously our craft seriously but kind of our brand irreverently just having real fun with it and um you know I, i'm a fan of, of westerns i'm a fan of uh, cinematography and you know, I think that sort of um, that genre is timeless, and so is American whiskey. It's timeless. It'll always be here. Wow, you're, you're totally right. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, now, before I let you go, where can our listeners get their own bottle of Fistful? Where are they finding this? Ooh. So we launched uh, September 14th nationally. So I think right now we're in every single state except North Carolina. Obviously, due to the pandemic, you know, we're working partnership with Drizzly and Instacart. So if you um you feel safe, you know, you're not willing to go out. Um, if you're in metropolitan areas, you can get that home liquor delivery, go through Instacart or Drizzly, Total Wine and more, pretty much any, you know, big um, retail uh, uh, spirit supply store. And obviously, just because we just rolled out and it's during a pandemic, you know, the distribution might take a little bit longer as well just to get into your favorite stores. But we are nationally distributed. So 
if you get a chance to go in your store and you don't obviously find it there, you just let them know. You know, these are the folks um, behind Hendrix. Uh, William Grant and Sons is our portfolio. So most likely every store carries one of our portfolio, which means they can also get Fistful of Bourbon in there. Well, that's great to know. Um, my co-host is in Utah. Uh, he's not on yeah. this call right now. So we wanted to get him a bottle, and it turned out it was harder than we expected to send liquor to Utah. They've got some incredibly strict rules there. So I ended up shipping it myself to him uh, under the guise of maple syrup. Uh, not yeah. to get, you know, you have to do what you have to do in order to get it there. So uh, I'll, I'll get a review back from him. Um, but just to wrap things up, I've got one last Western-related question for you. And this Ooh. one's purely hypothetical. It's just your yeah. imagination. So the year is 1878, and legendary lawman Wyatt Earp walks into a saloon in Dodge City and orders a whiskey. But rather than the cheap rot gut that he's used to getting, the bartender pours him a shot of fistful of bourbon. My question is, how does Wyatt Earp respond to this brand new bourbon? I would say he takes a sip, looks at the bartender, looks down, down at the glass again, takes another sip, looks at the bartender and goes, that's a damn fine bourbon. Nice. Wow. Well done. Well done. I could see that scene happening. It'd probably blow his mind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, Terry, I just want to thank you again for joining me on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking Westerns and bourbon with you. And, uh, I, I, you know, I love this stuff. It's great. This, your bourbon just kicks ass. Yeah. Listen, I, and I'm always learned. I always want to learn new things. I feel like if every day you can learn one new thing, you're on your way to a better life. And, I was a little apprehensive about being on a Western show because I don't know a lot about Westerns, but you make it uh, extremely approachable, just like Fistful of Bourbon is. So um, I definitely appreciate everything. You got it, man. Thanks again. Thanks, sir. <laughs>